Welcome to this message from Life Assembly, a thriving church in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. Please visit us online at lifemn.org for more information. And now join us as we pursue Jesus together. Amen. Amen. Well, I am so excited um, to introduce our speaker today. Um, So he um, is the vice president of spiritual life at North Central. And um, it is just such a great honor to have him here today. And um, he was here a little over a year ago. And was anybody here the last time Pastor Doug was here? Yeah. So it'll be really awesome. Um, But he uh, is such a pleasure to to listen to and just to get to know. So um, can we just welcome him this morning? Awesome. Thank you, Pastor Callie. Thank you. And appreciate you leading us in worship. It was fabulous. Worship team and Pastor Jim leading us in communion. Good morning, Life Assembly. I'm thrilled to be able to come back and be with you. And it looks like the children are being dismissed to Kids Church with Pastor uh, Bianca. And Bianca is a former student of mine and uh, really appreciate all that God's doing in her life. I love this church. And uh, what I like to do when I uh, travel and get invitations to speak in local churches, uh, I love to get here early. I love to get to the local church before the mass crowds arrive. And I like to uh, stand in the foyer, kind of uh, incognito and to the side. And I just love it as the family, the church family begins to arrive. And there is this sense of life that just kind of rises up. And I feel that here at Life Assembly had the privilege of talking with Alan, I believe, and getting just a little bit of the history uh, that stands behind this church and how it started and how it's formed and how it's developed through the years. And uh, today is Super Bowl Sunday. Of course, we all are familiar with that. And, it, and, it, and again, the New England Patriots are in the Super Bowl again. Um, do we have any Patriots fans in the house? Okay, so I'm going to offend Pastor Jim. Any? Okay, so... My favorite team, my, my favorite NFL team, and I know this is not going to make me very popular, but um, I spent too many years in ministry in Wisconsin, so I'm a Packer fan. But my second favorite team, my second favorite team is anyone playing the Cowboys or anyone who's playing the Patriots. So, but you know, I, I was just thinking, I was, I was looking at, I was looking online yesterday to find out if again... With the Patriots in the Super Bowl, are they are they also do they also have the odds with them? Are the are the are the odds makers uh, betting that they are going to win? And again, yes, they have the odds to win again uh, later today. And uh, the 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 Rams have had a great season if you're following the NFL season. But again, they're underdogs. And uh, the the concept of being an underdog is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk, and I don't want to talk about it in the sense of the L.A. Rams being uh, underdogs in today's game, and I don't really talk about any more about the Super Bowl. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to enjoy it, but I want to talk about the concept of being an underdog because the concept of being an underdog is something that each and every one of us have to deal with. The word underdog, I have, I'm sure that you felt in life in situations where you felt like all the odds were against you, that you were at the end of your rope, that everybody's favoring that you're not going to make it. The word underdog simply means to have everybody feel like you're not going to make it. You're not going to win. You're not going to succeed. The underdog is always the person who's at a disadvantage. 
The term underdog comes from the late 19th century where, where dog fighting was popular, as cruel as that is, but the, the dogs would fight, and, and the dog that would, 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 that would win would be called the top dog, and the dog that would lose would be called the underdog, and so it kind of comes from that, that concept. And uh, in life, we often are at the mercy of life's circumstances, and we find ourselves really, really, truly feeling as though we are an underdog in a situation. But you can finish this phrase, everybody loves an underdog. We love the underdog. We love the underdog. We love the stories of the people who who have all the odds stacked against them, and everybody's betting against them, and they are at the complete disadvantage, and yet the story plays out, and the unlikely does what's unlikely. They win, and we love underdog stories. We love the story of the 1980 men's U.S. hockey team who were the underdogs in the semifinal game against the Russians, and they won. And it was almost anticlimactic that that was just the semifinal game, but they did go on to win the gold in the next game, and I can't remember who they were playing. But the U.S. men's hockey team is kind of a team that we remember, especially in Minnesota, because this is hockey country. But we also remember underdogs like Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, uh, how many times did he pursue an elected office and was defeated and was defeated and was defeated and was defeated, and then all of a sudden something happened and he runs for president and he's elected to be 16th president of the United States and perhaps our greatest president that got us through the most uh, difficult portion of our history, the Civil War. We love stories of underdogs. We love the David and Goliath story. That is not just a story. It actually happened that this young shepherd boy would even dare to stand against a giant, a mammoth of a man, and God would give him the anointing to be victorious on that battlefield. We love stories of the underdog. So that's what I want to talk about. And the title of this teaching this morning is, comes from one of, the fa- one of the great passages of the scripture, 1 John 4, 14, which the title is, Greater is He. Greater is He, greater is He. When we talk about underdogs, this passage is the great underdog passage of all scripture. It speaks to the common human dilemma that is accurately defined when we find ourselves at the mercy of a power, of a force, of a situation that is greater than our own human abilities to deal with. And so, whether you feel at times like you're the underdog, or you're at the end of your rope, or you don't think you're going to be able to overcome this situation, what's common to every human being is the realization that in life, in situations or in seasons of life, we feel outnumbered. We feel out-resourced. We are at times outmaneuvered by people and or forces that are better equipped, stronger than us, and it brings us to our knees in, in what we know will be eventual defeat. And yet we have a scripture like this that we're going to look at in just a moment. That even though we are outmaneuvered and out-resourced and we don't know how we're going to make it, there is a passage of Scripture that reminds us that greater is He. Greater is He. Greater is He that is in us than He that's in the world. Now, the forces that we often deal with are not simply the forces of the devil. Of course, the forces of the enemy, the enemy of our soul, are stronger than us, stronger than our human capability, but it's 
We don't want to blame every underdog situation just on the devil. Sometimes life itself puts us in a situation where we, all we can do is cry uncle. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we're the underdog because we ourselves have made decisions and choices that have led us to a place deeply into a hole that we have dug ourselves, whether it be decisions that lead to certain things we do behaviorally over and over again, or it leads us to decisions where we have said things in patterns that we shouldn't say, or we've acted in ways and we've become a pattern, or we've eaten things we shouldn't eat and drunk, drink things that we shouldn't, whatever. We sometimes find ourselves in our own self-imposed underdog situation. But the good news is that there is a scripture that gives us hope. And so it brings us to this word today where we face the truth about life and we face the truth about ourselves that our underdog situation is not just something that's imposed on us by forces outside of ourselves. Sometimes we put ourselves in our own hole, but we also get to face the truth of freedom and forgiveness. And we face the truth of God's word that there is a future if in fact you're sitting here and I don't know your story, but God knows your story. And God knows that some of you have come into church with victory and some of you have come to church today feeling like you're an underdog because you're dealing with something that's beyond your personal strength. You're dealing with a relationship or you're dealing with something at work or you're dealing with something that financially has you at the end of your rope or you're in a situation where, where depression has creeped in or circumstantial oppression has creeped in and you feel very much like an underdog. And what God wants to bring to you is that there is a scripture that speaks into your situation where you feel like you're the underdog. So let's look at this text in 1 John 4, starting in verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. In this passage of these few verses that we're looking at this morning, I see three issues that John, the writer of this text, is kind of addressing that I want to look at as we kind of introduce this message and kind of get our heads and our hearts around the fact that there's hope when we are the underdog in a life situation. The first thing that I see is this word that I just want to claim as origins. In verse 4, he says, you dear children, you dear children are from God. John the Apostle is writing to Christians like you and like me in the local church, people who have an established belief and a personal trust in Jesus Christ. We've come to experience, most of us, perhaps maybe not all of us, but the vast majority of us in a local church, we've experienced the truth of Romans that tells us that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we are saved. Salvation triggers inside of the human soul and the human spirit when we come to the place where we are not our own savior. 
we are not our own God, that money is not our God, that pleasure is not our God. We might have pursued those gods and those idols, but we found them to be empty, and we come to God on our knees in this situation of spiritually being an underdog. We're at the, we're at the mercy of our sins, and yet we claim Jesus as our Savior. And the Spirit of God comes into our life, and he changes us. He transforms us. In a moment, we are made new creatures in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us. But in being a new creature in Christ, in being saved, it doesn't mean that all of our problems have gone away. There are still some issues in life that we still will wrestle with. People who feel as though they are underdogs in life or underdogs spiritually is not just those who don't know Jesus yet. Many well-meaning believers who sit in a pew, a chair, a church like this week after week after week can still find that we're struggling with some things. That we need this greater than he, greater is he that is in us. We need that power in our lives. But it goes back to origins, that we are from God. Now, this is very important because origin represents beginnings. Origin represents where we came from. It represents who we came from. Origin, uh, spiritual origin, is, is not unlike our physical origin that we call our DNA, DNA, our physical DNA can be found in every fiber of our physical body. It can be found in every muscle. It can be found in every blood cell. It, the, the DNA structure that has made you who you are physically uh, is in every part of your being, and yet more deeply embedded into you is your spiritual DNA. Your physical birth certificate gives us some indication of where you were born and to whom you were born, and it gives us a description that's good, but it's your spiritual birth certificate that tells us not only where you're from, but it tells us to whom you belong. So a question I would ask is, to whom do you belong? We're talking about greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world, but the question we have to respond to is, to whom do I belong? Who do you belong to today? If you're married, in a very real way, you are, you belong to a spouse. That's good. If you are, all of us are children, perhaps our parents aren't necessarily living anymore, uh, but we belong to our parents. We belong to our family name. And those are all good things, but you know what? A lot of people on a Sunday like this feel like they belong to their boss. They feel they belong to the company. They they belong, they belong, they're owned by someone in a relationship who's overbearing. And so you might feel as though you aren't even yourself because you belong to forces that are outside of your control. And I want to tell you that even stronger than any relationship that seems to be controlling you or a financial pinch that is controlling you, you belong to God. At the very moment you say, Jesus, you're my Lord and you're my Savior, he comes into you and he owns you. And he takes responsibility of owning you and being in you. But sometimes even we as believers find ourselves operating and living as though we don't even belong to God. So I want to remind, us of your, I want to remind you of your origin. There's a second issue from this passage that we're looking at, and that is the issue of struggles. Verse 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them. That word overcome is indicating a struggle. Now, think for a moment. If if life was not, uh, a, a, if life did not have struggles, then the word overcome wouldn't even be in this verse. We wouldn't need this verse. But the fact is, life isn't easy. And the Christian life isn't easy. 
In fact, I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the moment you are born again, the moment Jesus becomes alive inside of you, that the moment the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, it's quite possible that life struggles. Actually, the heat is turned up. Why? Because now we have an enemy of our souls who wants to kill, steal, and destroy that spirit that's inside of us. So the question, the second question I want to ask is, what are you struggling with? In what way are you struggling? Because you know that you have an enemy of your soul, you know that there are forces that are against you, maybe there's even people at your job that are, that are, that are, that are fighting you from behind your back. There's issues. Might be a spouse that's coming against you, or maybe you're a parent and your children are struggling against you. But with whom are you struggling, and what are you struggling with? Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. That God who lives inside of you, though you are disadvantaged in struggles, or you feel that way, greater is he that is in you. Yes, you feel like an underdog, but underdogs often win when they respond in the right way to the right power that's made available. But do you understand what you're struggling with? The last little comment here in this passage is the word listening. I want to Look at this, in verse 6, it says, They are from the world and speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. There are many voices in the world in which we live today. There's always been many voices. There are all kinds of messages that are being sent to us whether it be voices that we hear in our spirit or in our emotions or voices that we hear in emails that we have to answer or texts that come our way. There's all kinds of messages. There are all kinds of agendas, all kinds of forces that are trying to push us and, 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 and drive us to fulfill certain agendas that other people have. And with that come many, many voices. So it's critical that you and I navigate life by listening to the right voices. Adam and Eve, they were literally directly connected to God, and they were in a perfect environment. Sin had not even come in to bring confusion, and yet all it took for them to lose their innocence was to listen to the wrong voice. And it could happen to them, it can happen to us. So, third little question is, who are you listening to? What voices are you listening to? Whose voice is most important to you? If you happen to be an individual that watches TV all day long, you're probably listening to the wrong voice. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't watch TV, but I'm just saying that voices are being spoken to us through all kinds of avenues, but whose voice are you truly dialing into to listen to? Now, with that as a backdrop, life is an underdog experience. Life is not without struggles and voices and influences, but the good news is that God doesn't leave us as orphans. God did not create this Christian life for us in such a way where he would say something like, hey, I created you, I became born again, and you became born again with me inside of you, I've given you this beautiful planet, I've given you all kinds of skills and abilities, cognitive abilities to, 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 to make a life that's worth living, but as far as me giving you day-to-day -day intimate direction or assistance, I'm, I'm pretty much busy doing all kinds of other things, you're on your own, good luck. God isn't that way. The nature of God is to be not only transcendent in that he is everywhere out there, but he's also eminent. He's very, he's very, he's, he's as close as the mention of his name. That's the God in whom we serve. So greater is he. It's not greater is he who is out there who might help you if you're a good Christian. No, greater is he that is in us. 
And so he doesn't leave us as orphans. In fact, John, who penned the words that we're looking at here in this epistle of 1 John, he penned something very, very interesting and powerful related to this in his gospel. In John 14, starting in verse 14, Jesus says, Ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will help you to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you, and I will not leave you as orphans. And you might not be an actual orphan, but all of us due to our sin are spiritual orphans. And do you know what it means to be a spiritual orphan? It means to be an underdog. It means to be in that underdog position. It means that you are expected to lose the contest. You're the underdog. You are disadvantaged. And the problem with being a Christian over time is that we often lose sight of the disadvantage that comes when we sin. And when we do what we know we shouldn't do, but we do it anyway, and we neglect that understanding that when sin begins to get a hold of our lives, we are actually putting ourselves more and more at a disadvantage in experiencing the true life that God wants us to have. We forget how bound we were back in the B.C. days before Christ. We forget how insecure we were. We, we begin to forget how selfish we were. Maybe it's been so long since we were born again that we can't even remember those days when we were addicted or when we were held bound to some compulsion or some yearning or some desire or something that was just consuming our desire to benefit ourselves in selfishness. And that way of life, that perspective of living was like a beast inside of us that we fed every day. And the result is that we were owned and we were imprisoned by ourself and by the devil and then God spoke to us and I don't know how it was for you I don't know who the vo- I don't know for you who it was that became the voice of God for you I know who it was for me it was a Christian football coach in my ninth grade year of 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 high school I'd been raised in church all of my life I'd been hearing the gospel I was in all of the educational programs of that denominational church, but I'd never really heard the voice of God spoken to me until it came through a Christian football coach that began to teach me and model for me what it meant to be born again, what it meant to be personally alive with Jesus living inside of my life. And I remember I was 15. I remember the words that I said in a specific prayer, and I asked Jesus to come into my life. Yes, I believed him. The words were, God, I've believed in you all my life, but I've never invited you into my life to live inside of me so that I can live for you. And when I said that prayer, it's it's not like the skies were lit up, but I knew that I knew that I knew that God had come into my life because I began to verbalize praise and worship. And as I did that, it's like I sense the Holy Spirit filling my life in a very, very powerful way. So I don't, know. I don't know how it happened for you or when it happened for you. But the dynamic of spiritual life that comes into our lives is that portal through which we begin to live out this reality that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. 
Greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. Now, with that established, we sometimes then have to ask the question, okay, if greater is God who is in us than the devil who's in the world, what does that mean? How does that live out? I mean, if we don't really think about it, it is just purely a theology, which is a spiritual truth, but if we don't take spiritual truth and apply it to daily living like I believe it's true, but how does it benefit me? In what ways is this truth, this this power that is inside of me that's greater than the power of the devil in the world, in what ways does it change my life? Let me give you three ways. Because there's, there's a responsibility that God has placed upon us for us to actualize or to have actualized this power that is ours to tap into. And the first thing that we need to do is this. We need to own our habits. We need to own our habits. Owning a habit means I admit it. I admit it. Owning a habit does not mean giving into it. It means what Jesus said in the the, the very first portion of the Beatitudes that that Matthew captured in chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Let me tell you what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that I am utterly dependent on Jesus. I'm utterly dependent on God in my life if I, am, if I am going to see something happen that is beyond my own power. If I am to live this spiritual life in my own power, it's not going to happen. I'm poor in spirit. I need God. And so when I was 15... It was very, very clear. I needed God's power to help me because there were some habits. There were some relationships. There were some behavioral patterns. And that took place 40 years ago. 40 years ago this summer is when I gave my life to Jesus. So I'm 55 years old. I'm still having to plead for the grace of God and the mercy of God. I still have to practice this sense of God. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to be reminded every day of my life, knowing that at North Central University, where I'm the campus pastor, I know that students at that university assume that I am more spiritual and more godly than what I really am. That I need God's mercy and I need his grace in this 40th year of my faith as I did in my first year. So step one is greater is he than all my habits. It means I'm no longer in denial. All that stuff in my mind, all that stuff that gets in my heart, all of that stuff that I do, I say, all the stuff that I eat that I shouldn't eat or drink that I shouldn't drink, it's with God's grace. I'm able to own my sin, my habit, not in the sense of owning it that I'm gonna keep it, but own it in the sense that I'm responsible for it. That that sin is mine, God, it's mine. I know it's mine, and I need you to forgive it. So three quick things about owning our habits. Number one, you gotta admit your responsibility. Look at Romans 7, 15, 18 to 19, familiar passage from Paul. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, then I act another. Doing things I actually despise. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. I wanna do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I, want to, I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Probably no other passage in the scriptures that's as real to life as that one right there. Because that verse right there is all of our verses. It's for all of us. So we have to admit our responsibility. Secondly, you've got to accept God's grace. Titus, Paul writes to Titus, and he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches. God's grace teaches us 
and enables us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. And it's God's grace. The power of God's grace is what helps us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present life. God changes our life, literally transforms our life, not through the power of shame, not through the power of threat. God doesn't change us or transform us by the fear, you're going to go to hell if you don't change. And isn't it interesting? That's how we try to change other people. Shame on you. We belittle people. We make them feel embarrassed, hoping that that will inspire them to change. When God changed us by grace. With grace, God gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us his love, his forgiveness. He gives us this power of transformation. What a wonderful gift. It's given freely. We don't deserve it. And by mercy, God withholds things that we do deserve. Judgment, punitive punishment, the full-blown result, consequential result of sins that we really do deserve. And yet God says about many, many things, yeah, you deserve it, but I'm going to withhold it. There are some sins that we do have to pay the consequence for, and I believe one day in heaven we're going to see the videotape on our lives and we're going to see all the times God said, you know what, I, I pulled it back. I was showing you mercy. Here's the point. God isn't interested in shaming you into obedience or getting you over your bad habits. There's no redeeming power at all in shame. On the contrary, there is incredible power and grace. God's commitment to love us even over his dead body. God said it to all of us. I love you so much I'd rather die than to be without you forever in heaven. Which means, number three, we've got to activate some new routines. If we're going to get over our habits, we've got to own them. We have to accept God's grace, and we have to activate new routines. Some people think that it's all about the power to break habits. It's not about the power to break a habit. It's about the power to build new habits. For every habit that needs to go out the door, there has to be a corresponding habit that comes in the door. Why is it important? Because broken habits without a corresponding new habit creates a vacuum. And this is what I know about vacuums. They suck. <laughs> But you know the passage where Jesus in Luke 11 talks about the impure spirit that was cast out of a house. And then that impure spirit thought, hey, I wonder if that house is still empty. Finds that the house is, no, is still empty and brings even more demons with it. And it's worse off than it was before. So as much as you're going to say, I'm going to kick that. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do anything. There has to be a corresponding good habit. So greater is he that is in us. We've got to own our habits. Number two, we have to offset our hurts. We have to offset our hurts. How do you heal from your hurts? You can't erase them. You can't pretend it doesn't hurt, and you can't ignore your hurts. You can't even, dare I say, pray your hurts away. Hurt is a weight that's just there. And the more we ignore it, the heavier it gets. And not because the hurt gets heavier, it's because we get weaker. The point is that hurt is a reality that we have to be very, very real about. Being real about a hurt doesn't mean that we heal ourselves, but that we have to make good, godly decisions about what we're going to do with that hurt, that offense that has gotten into our hearts. Let me suggest three responses that offset the weight of hurt. Number one, you've got to audit your anger. Genesis 4, 6 the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, not, will you not be accepted? But 
If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must overrule it. Ruling over anger. It's not dominating like, like I'm going to kill that anger inside of me. Ruling over anger is simply admitting it so that I can properly audit it. I can investigate it. I can look at it. I can ask myself, why am I so angry? What triggered the anger? Why do I react the way I do in my anger? That's auditing your anger. And you want to know some of the, the group of people that often misunderstand or mishandle anger, it's spiritual people. You know how spiritual people disguise anger? They call it passion. I'm just passionate. Well, I know you're passionate, but you're angry. You're angry. Rather than calling it spiritual passion, why don't we just call it anger? It's okay to call it anger. Do you know that anger is not sin? It's not a sin to be angry. When we disguise it in other terms and coddle it, instead of just calling it for what it is, it's anger. I'm angry. Honey, I just want you to know, I'm angry. Or you're in a meeting and you, you just simply say, rather than banging your fist on the table and calling it passion, you don't bang your fist and you just simply say, listen, that makes me angry. See, if we can't address anger for what it is, it's not a sin, but it has to be monitored. What happens is we, we, we disguise it, and then that thing that is anger just festers more and more, and it becomes bitterness, and that's where the sin comes. So we need to audit our anger if we are going to offset our hurts. Number two, we need to accept loss, because sometimes our, our, our hurt is not due to an emotional anger, but it's due to the fact that I've lost something or I've lost someone. John eleven twenty one. the Lord said, uh, uh, Martha said to the Lord, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That's the greatest understatement in all of the Bible. Because, of course, if Jesus had been there, he could have kept Lazarus from dying. Jesus can do anything. God can do anything. But a situation where God would prevent all hurt and all pain and drive away all tears, you know what that place is called. It's called heaven. And we're not there yet. And so we live in an, a reality where we are hurt because we have losses. People leave our lives. People die. People say ugly things towards us. And we have losses. And we have to know how to let God heal us. Which means we have to grab a hold of something that is very, very important. A theological concept called sovereignty. That in our loss, death, separation, divorce even, whatever the case may be, we lean into sovereignty, God's sovereignty, meaning that God didn't necessarily do it or God didn't necessarily cause it. That's not the question as to why did God allow this or why did God do this. That's not the issue. The issue is that God is still in control of your circumstance of loss. It's not as though God was busy with some other deal, some other crisis in the world, and when he turned his head, this loss hit you, and now you say like Martha, God, if you'd been here, he, this wouldn't have happened to me. No, God saw the whole thing. God sees the whole thing, and he's sovereign. You see, theology can heal. Grabbing a hold of truth that God is still sovereign in the midst of you having lost, perhaps having lost it all. 
God is still sovereign. And he gives us the ability to go to this third step in terms of offsetting our hurts, and we advance our faith. When you are hurting, you need to still advance your faith. Jude, verse 20 says, You dear children, build yourself up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. There's a directional priority when you are hurting. A directional priority where where the writer says, Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. When you are hurting and you don't want to go to church, church is the best place for you to be because Callie and the worship team and Pastor Dale and Pastor Jim and and the rest are going to encourage you to look up. Yeah, I know that life is miserable. Yeah, I know that all the odds are against you, but look up. Every time in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, where it says that, that, that Jonah went down to Joppa or Abraham went down to Egypt during the famine, they were going the wrong direction. The right direction is always up. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And it's a determined priority because we're supposed to do it in our most holy faith. Most holy faith. When you are hurting, it's hard to feel as though you are holy. But listen, holiness simply means to be separate from what's common and what's carnal and what's secular and what's hopeless. Your most holy faith, you come into a sanctuary like this, or you get on your knees and you open your Bible, and you say, oh God, this hurts, and it makes me angry, and I feel more like the devil than I do the Holy Son of God, but the Holy Spirit helps you, and he builds up your most holy faith with encouragement and daily prayer. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, with all kinds of prayers and requests, and with this in mind, be alert. And always keep praying for the Lord's people. And it leads to a deliberate passion, keeping yourself in God's love. When you are hurting, keep yourself in God's love. What we want to do when we're hurting is we want to isolate. And we want to create a pity party. And we want to just crawl and get the sheets over us. And we don't want to talk to anybody or see anybody. You need to let God keep you in his love. So greater is he. Let me go to the last one because I think this is a very practical thing. And we'll bring this to a conclusion. I absolutely must overcome my hang-ups. So if we were to review this, owning my habits, we understand that the power of Jesus is greater than the power of addiction, power of compulsion, power of my bad tendencies. That to offset all my hurts, we see that the power of Jesus is greater than my anger, it's greater than my bitterness, it's greater than my unforgiveness. And the power of overcoming my hang-ups, the power of Jesus in us is greater than what quite possibly could be the most powerful tool the devil uses to ruin our lives, our hang-ups, which speaks to our shame and our guilt, past memories. One final passage as Callie begins to play is that great passage of Scripture in John 8 where Jesus is being tested by religious leaders who want to put him in a situation where if he answers this way, he's in trouble. If he answers that way, he's in trouble. And so in order to put Jesus in a bind, they came up with this scheme. They understood that the law of Moses required a certain consequence 
for a person that could be caught committing a particular sin. But they'd been hearing Jesus talk so much about love and mercy and grace. So they got this guy to make this connection with this gal. And in the middle of their adulterous act, they caught him. And they dragged the woman out of that hotel room. And they throw her to the ground. And they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says that we're to stone her. What do you say? Jesus kind of just Bible says he's down here everybody speculates what's he writing text doesn't tell us that's not really important he stands up and he says okay Whoever among you has no sin, go for it. Do it. And the crowd has to, ooh, we didn't expect him to answer that way. And they all realize that none of them qualify according to what Jesus said. And the Bible is very interesting. It says they started to walk away. The oldest first. when they'd all walked away he gets back on the ground and he looks at the woman and he says um, who's here to condemn you now she lifts up her head and she says no one because everybody was gone and Jesus says neither do I I'm not going to condemn you don't do this anymore. Don't do it anymore. Go in peace. So, that relates to all of us because there are four players in this actual episode. We relate to three of them. You got the woman caught. We've all been caught. We've all been caught in some... You can probably go back in your... You were caught. Your mom caught you. Your dad caught you. Your boss caught you. Your wife, your husband, your kids caught you. You were caught red-handed. We relate to that, don't we? There's a second. We didn't get caught. We participated, but they didn't catch me. Got away with it. Yeah, the woman was caught in adultery. She dragged to Jesus. But what about the man? And then you have the crowds who love, who love it when someone's in trouble. And you've been there, I've been there. 
But there's a fourth person in this episode, and that is Jesus. I want to I be him. I, I want to be more like him, the forgiver, the grace giver. The problem is, is as human as all of us, we're all human, and we're still putting our hand in the cookie jar when we shouldn't be, and we're getting caught, or we're doing stuff we know we shouldn't do, and we're not getting caught. We are still kind of relishing it when other people get in trouble. And those roles that we are still kind of finding ourselves playing out keep us from being men and women of grace and mercy like Jesus was. And it might be because you've got some habits that are owning you. You've got some hurts that you've not been healed from or you've got a hang-up that just is still hanging on. I want you to close your eyes Bow your heads for just a moment. Callie's going to close the service in just a moment. And I know that at the end of the services here at Life Assembly, there are people ready to pray for you and to lay hands on you as a conclusion. But before I kind of transition or hand it off to them, I'm a guest friend. Uh, I'm getting to know you a little bit better, having been invited to come back today after being away a year. But you're not responding to me. I've been praying that God somehow, it's not you know, Doug Graham coming to preach the message in place of Pastor Dale, but Holy Spirit's always about you speaking to this congregation. It's always about your voice, your voice. So I'm asking you, Lord, with these people, precious congregation, but them individually, there are those who I'm sure are dealing with some habits, some things that they know aren't good and godly. Maybe not a real big deal, but they know that Oh, if they could just walk away and never do it again, they would do it in a heartbeat. And I ask you to help them to not feel shamed. The devil would bring shame and condemnation. They would walk away just gritting their teeth. I'm never going to do it again. It's not really about not doing that. It's maybe about doing something different, new, being more consistent in their Bible, being consistent in prayer, being consistent in speaking words of life, whatever it is. There are those that are here that deal with with loss, there, there's hurt and, and anger comes out and bitterness comes out or their grief has crippled them. And there are those who have hang-ups, the hang-up of, of shame, of, of condemnation. I pray, Lord, for them. Pray that for them, Lord Jesus. By way of giving you an opportunity to just express your faith to God, not to me, would you lift your hand if you'd say, Holy Spirit, I hear you speaking to me. You're speaking to me. Holy Spirit, you're speaking to me. Just slip a hand in the air as a way of letting your faith be exercised to the Holy Spirit, even right now, the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You're speaking to me. You're speaking to me. Yes, many, many hands, many hands, many hands. Why don't you all stand to your feet and as Callie leads us maybe in a final song, and if there are prayer members ready to pray for people, if, if you would like to have someone pray for you because you lifted your hand or you didn't lift your hand, if you'd like to have someone pray for you before you leave, it's been a privilege to be able to bring God's word to you. God bless you. Let God's word minister and strengthen you today. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Life Assembly. Connect with us online at lifemn.org. And thanks for listening.